0: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, today I want to start by doing something that we often try to do on Stuff to Blow Your Mind and on this show too, which is try to make something that's familiar weird again. Yes. The thing that I want to take from your familiar world and make you face the weirdness of it again is that we live in a techno culture that has the ability to create relatively objective fixed media records of reality itself and uh, an example of this of course is the photograph think about the difference between a photograph and the real world Uh, so you know we're so used to photos at this point that we take them for granted but try again to feel the weirdness and appreciate how strange it is uh, and how mystical it is that, that we have these objects around us like the physical world you know is this ongoing transient always moving, always lightening and darkening, always transforming three-dimensional space full of objects. Mm -hmm. But then you've got the photograph, which is a fixed two-dimensional image on a a flat surface. And yet we think of the photograph as an objective or sort of semi-objective, we can explore that distinction in a bit, record of physical reality. It's definitely a record of something, but it's not exactly physical reality, is it? It's physical reality interpreted through this transformation process that partially resembles and partially does not resemble animal vision.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and, and this is even without getting into uh, modern uh, or even 20th century, uh, you know, photo editing techniques. Oh, sure. But just like the raw photographic image uh, that, that results. It, yeah, is this thing that is, it's really, you can't think of it as, as uh, is, is an approximation of, of animal sight, of biological sight, uh, it, it's it's more like it, it's almost like a form of language. In the same way that we've discussed on um, this and stuff to blow your mind before, how written language is like a, a thought that is taken and frozen so that it can uh, retain the same form for the most part, with some interpretations. And and that's sort of what we're doing with with photography. We're kind of freezing. Uh, the mental image or some version of the mental image.
1: Except it can also be misleading because I think photography has contributed to us having a skewed idea of what mental imagery is. Mm-hmm. It's actually led to us, I think, having a an idea that our mental imagery is like a, a fixed record that has full resolution at every, you know, from corner to corner of the image, which, as we'll discuss also a little bit more in this episode, is not the case at all. Our vision is something more like a, uh, a uh, an interpretive illusion based on key bits of light data entering through the
0: eyes yeah and and yet especially for you know for us modern humans, we we often reinterpret our memories in the form of, of photos uh, in, and motion pictures I, I know I, I catch myself doing this all the time I'll think back to say a moment from my childhood and what I'm kind of doing is I'm kind of, picturing a photograph, a photograph that might exist, because sometimes I am referring back to actual photographs that serve as kind of like a, a, you know, a a bookmark for that memory, Mm -hmm. perhaps even the source of a memory, where I'm really remembering a picture of something rather than the experience. But other times I'm kind of forming some sort of, you know, half-realized, half-imaginary photo of what happened.
1: But think about how different our memories of our childhood would be if there were no photographs whatsoever, like no even semi-objective visual record of the world that we lived in back then. All we had was mental imagery and memory.
0: Yeah, what if you were like most people and when a uh, a loved one – uh, grew older or certainly passed away, you had no longer any uh, real physical reminder of what they looked like. Yeah. You could forget the face of your your father in a, in a very real way.
1: So I think it's absolutely clear that photography is one of the most revolutionary technologies that's ever been created. It, it has probably not just changed what humans are able to do, but has fundamentally in some ways altered the way we think and the way we envision our own lives. But There was a long time before there was photography and it's probably pretty tempting to think, well, you know, before photography, we just had imagination. We had drawing. We had painting. People could like Mm -hmm. look at the world around them and try to interpret it in paintings. But that would be the closest thing we had to a visual uh, sort of semi-objective record of what the world looked like. But that's not exactly right because there was a sort of stepping stone before we had photography – we had the camera obscura.
0: That's right, and that is going to be what we are going to focus this episode on. Basically, the uh, the approach here is we want to devote like three episodes. Uh, first, the camera obscura, and then do an episode on on the origins of photography, and then do an episode on the motion picture. So, you know, basically climbing, ascending the ladder uh, to uh, still photography, then the moving picture, and talk about, you know, how these changes came about, how these inventions came about, and how they changed our world.
1: Yeah, so the camera obscura is not a camera in the sense you're thinking of. It doesn't actually constitute photography meaning making a fixed record of uh, a visual scene uh, a camera obscura that's literally its latin and it means what dark room dark chamber dark
0: chamber yeah which is a wonderful name. It's one of the reasons that that at times doing research on Camera Obscura can be so difficult because it seems like Camera Obscura has been the name of so many different like literary journals, horror movies, horror <laughs> movies <laughs> bands. It's just such a cool title. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, it means dark chamber because one of the key elements here is that that's necessary and would have been necessary in ancient times as well is that you have to have a dark chamber to create a Camera Obscura. And The weird thing about camera Obscure is that they do serve as this kind of bridge between like natural optics and photographic technology. Mm -hmm. And yet it feels magic in a way. Like even today, as a modern user using it, like it feels magic in a way that photography no longer feels magic. It feels magical in a way that sight no longer feels magical. Even though when you break down what exactly is happening biologically and and uh, and and neurologically during sight, I mean that's it's it's a pretty fantastic process as well. But yeah, the camera obscura still has this. Um, this 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 kind of eerie feel to it
1: yes the camera obscura so the principle is extremely simple mm-hmm. but the implications are fascinating and and the way it's been processed throughout human history and in the history of optics leading up to photography is also fascinating so the basic principle as we say is mechanically extremely simple you have a darkened chamber, and this can be a room in a building or a tent, or this could even be a small box. It could even just be like a shoebox or a can, something that is a chamber that doesn't allow light in, except through a single small aperture on one side. Right, and,
0: and we have to stress with this aperture – more recent uh, camera obscuras like for instance my, my, my wife um, uh, Bonnie who is a, a photographer in the Atlanta area she recently made a camera obscura as part of an open house uh, for her uh, for the studio uh, that she has mm-hmm. and they used a a, a lens to serve as the aperture. Yeah. But you don't need to use a lens. All you need is a hole.
1: Yeah. Now, the lens the lens is an important development that comes later right. in the history of the camera obscura. But yeah, all you need is a hole. And what you get when you have a darkened room with a small hole that's the right size and the right position away from the wall opposite it is that an inverted image from the world outside this this box or this room will be projected onto the wall of the darkened chamber. So just as an example, if your camera obscura is a room with the right kind of small hole in the wall facing a view of the Pyramids of Giza, you will see an image of the pyramids upside down and inverted projected against the wall opposite the hole as if there were an upside down film slide projector shining against a screen.
0: Right. It's just – it's it's maddening to kind of see one in, in action because it feels like there should be a projector there. There should be some – a man-made mechanism that is making this possible mm-hmm. and and it's not it's it's basically just a hole
1: yeah now you might wonder okay wait a second Why does this happen? Like, why don't the windows in my house do that, right? That my Mm -hmm. house is a closed chamber. I've got holes in the walls that light can pass through the windows. And so there are a few reasons the windows in your house probably don't work this way. Number one, your house is not dark enough. Number two, you've got too many sources of light, probably, uh, that are, you know, coming from different directions. And number three, normal windows are generally too wide, letting in light from too many different angles – to actually cast an image with any resolution. So let's think about the reasons why a pinhole or a small lens projects an image of the outside world inverted on an inner wall while a larger hole or lens does not. Uh, a few main principles here. Number one, pretty much all the light in an outdoor scene is reflected sunlight. So it's the sun shines down, light bounces off everything out there. Number two, when light reflects off of an object, the wavelength is changed, and thus its color is changed. So you've got different colored rays of light beaming all over the place. Number three, light is reflected off surfaces at all angles, so it's gonna go in all kinds of directions. But once it's reflected, and this is number four, it travels in a straight line. And because light travels in a straight line, and because the aperture in the the camera obscura is small, Rays striking the bottom of the projected image will come from the top of the original image. And rays striking the top of the projected image will come from the bottom of the original. Same thing goes left to right. You've got uh, light rays entering in all directions through a sort of – you can imagine a filtering cone that focuses the image and makes it sharp that then forms a cone of projection on the other side of the wall.
0: I think the first place I saw – A camera obscure was the Royal Museum uh, Greenwich.
1: Oh, I haven't been there.
0: Uh, yeah, it's it's a great place to check one out uh, because it also has like a historical context because there's there's been a camera obscura of Gr- at Greenwich from like the late 17th century on through the mid 19th century, and the current one was I believe installed in 1994, and it shows a, a close up moving panorama of uh, of Greenwich and the and the Thames, the National Maritime Museum, and the Royal Naval College. Oh, cool! So it's it's really cool. Uh, yeah, in, in anybody, any of our British listeners out there, or anyone who finds themselves uh, visiting that area, uh, it's a great place to check out the camera obscura in action.
1: I mean, w- what does it look like? So it's projected on a wall, like a stone wall or a screen. Or yeah,
0: I, I mean, it's, this was uh, over a decade ago when I when I saw it, but I remember it had kind. Of, it has kind of a ghostly quality to it. That's one of the striking things uh, yeah. about my experiences with camera obscuras is that in both cases there is this this ethereal nature to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you wouldn't. Or at least the ones I've experienced, you wouldn't like walk into it and like smack into the wall, thinking it's it's reality, right? But like it, it, there's a feeling of the illusion to it, and yet it it, it has yeah it has this magical property.
1: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And and you can vary, you can sort of like tweak those magic feeling Mm -hmm. properties or the qualities of the projected image by changing things about the aperture that lets the light in. For example, a smaller aperture, you shrink the hole, that will generally produce a sharper image on the projection with less blurring, but it will also be dimmer, of course, because less light is getting through the hole. A wider aperture, on the other hand, will produce a brighter but blurrier picture generally. And in fact, you can imagine, just take, this principle uh, to the extreme because this is how if you just keep widening the aperture more and more, eventually the picture would get brighter and brighter and blurrier and blurrier until eventually what you have is simply a window again. You're just admitting (laughs) white light with no definition in the image. Now, one other technological way to mess with this that, you know, you mentioned that when Bonnie made one, it had a lens in it. The lens is a really important upgrade on the simple hole-in-the-wall camera obscura. Uh, A lens is, of course, transparent and has a convex outer surface, and this allows you to get more of the best qualities of a smaller aperture combined with a larger aperture. The the convex lens gathers more light from more angles because of the way it bends, so it literally admits more light and creates a brighter picture, while at the same time, time it focuses that light toward a point by the refraction that the lens does, allowing you to get a sharper, more focused, and brighter image.
0: It's a pretty impressive uh, trick, and th- there are a number of, of really cool illustrations from old texts oh, yes. illustrating this, uh, where you, you'll see uh, like a figure, figure A, and then there's a, you know, a second figure inside of the box, and that, uh, th- that figure's upside down, and then you have the lines uh, drawing uh, how the, uh, the, the optical image is inverted. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's pretty cool.
1: I mean focusing light like this through a lens that goes through an aperture and then projects inverted on a screen is actually similar to how our eyes work. You ever think about this? Like, mm-hmm. So the human eye, of course, light is gathered and refracted through a lens. You've got a lens in your eye. And then its focus projected onto a light-sensitive membrane at the back of the eye, and this is called the retina. These are our retinas. And the light-sensing cells in the retina then transmit the image, or maybe not the image, you could say the data from the image to the brain to be interpreted into the experience we call vision. And just like with the camera obscura, just like the projection on the wall at the back of the camera obscura, the images of the world that we see every day are projected onto our retinas in an inverted form, upside down and reverse. That's how they hit those light-sensitive cells. And it's up to the brain to create the perception of the visual field that we interpret as right-side up. Now, one thing I – way I've often seen this I think perhaps misexplained is that this fact is sometimes communicated by saying that our brains, quote, flip or, quote, rotate the retinal image back to, to the format it was in. But that's not quite right because there's nothing for the brain to flip it onto. You know, you think about mm. like the perception of the visual field, uh, the image that you actually think you see in your brain – Is not a physical space mapping one for one from reality, but a sort of perceptual illusion created by the brain. Uh, A great example of this if you've never tried it, you probably think you can see color in your peripheral vision, right? You just assume you can see color everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, but you can you can play a really fun game to break this illusion. Have somebody hold different colored flags right at the edge of your peripheral vision where you can just see motion and you think you can see color, and then try to say what color the flags
0: are. You will probably fail. Another good uh, thing to use are um, identical markers with different colored tops. Yeah. Like if you have a bunch of Sharpies like we have in the office where uh-huh. some have green tops, some have red tops, all virtually the same looking. Uh, so get somebody to sneak up behind you with a bunch of them <laughs> and experiment with optics that way.
1: I think I just noticed you sort of trying it I out was, here, yeah. Right? yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, I have a green one in my hand. And I mean, it's difficult to do to yourself because you, of course, have so much of our vision is about like the memory and yeah. knowledge of the thing.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but th- that's because like you're seeing with your brain as much as you're seeing with your eyes. Your eyes actually, you know, you're you're not seeing color over here even though you strongly have the perception that you're seeing color in your periphery. So your brain creates a sensation of an image simulating a kind of one-to-one relationship with the outside physical world that you can prove in a number of ways does not actually – You know, it does not actually capture that world in a one-to-one way. Another example is our complete unawareness moment-to-moment of the blind spot created in each eye by the optic nerve. Do you ever play that game?
0: Oh, this is where the – basically there's that that spot where you cannot see but your vision kind of stitches everything together. Yeah,
1: you don't notice that you Mm -hmm. have blind spots right in front of your face.
0: Right. Uh, Reminds me of our our chat with the author R. Scott Baker Mm -hmm. on Stuff to Blow Your Mind where he talked about having an eye condition – uh, that he uh, that had corrected, but it it caused him to to have a bl- an extra blind spot. Mm-hmm. And so if he looked at say, a, his dog's face, he would see like a faceless dog.
1: yes, but that that's the fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. The way he described it was it wasn't like he saw a like black hole there where there was nothing. Instead, he just did not see in that area. Yeah. It was just no vision. And yet, the brain stitches together a picture anyway, giving you the impression that you're seeing your surroundings in a one-to-one way, which we are not.
0: Right. It's more. It's less like like we are the observer, and more like we're given a we're given a, a version of it. We're some, kind of like the head of a big company or a state, and somebody like gives us a memo. Uh, like telling us what the situation is and we we ag- agree with it because it seems like it's all properly uh, assembled.
1: Yeah, so I think the way the brain puts together the idea of what's right side up and upside down is cognitively. That's going on in processing somewhere in the brain based on all kinds of sense data, visual data, but also I think just like balance data and stuff like that. The retina senses, the brain perceives based on the senses including this retinal data, but the perception created is not a photograph inverted from the retinas, but more like an internal interpretation based on it. But anyway, it is true that the projector screen of light-sensitive cells that send information to your brain, that those retinas, they receive an image inverted from its orientation in physical space. So ironically, when we look at an image projected onto the back wall of a camera obscura – upside down and reversed, is then reflected and refracted through the lenses of our eyes, projected on our retinas right side up again. And of course, our brains being doing what they do, they seamlessly correct or interpret this input, flipping it upside down again in perception. Another interesting thing about the camera obscura and the history of how people have thought about what the eyes do is mm-hmm. that a very common view among scholars throughout the ages is that light is not an external input on the eyes, but rather many scholars throughout history believed that the eyes would beam out some kind of retrieving ray, which grabs images from the world and pulls them back in. This is, of course, extremely wrong. Eyes are input, not output. But it's funny how captivating that kind of a way of viewing the world can be.
0: Yeah, it's easy just to sort of subconsciously think of it that way um you know think of your your eyes sort of yeah reaching out and touching the world and reporting back like they're like like they're 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 touching the side of an elephant or something and, and reporting back and of course, as we mentioned on the show before, our uh, our various um, romantic pop songs are always getting it wrong, talking about my eyes touch you physically, <laughs> <laughs> that sort yeah. of thing. Uh, where it's like, no, don't don't touch eyeballs, uh, lovers of the 1980s. Just... Oh,
1: Peter Gabriel's the worst offender, right?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. What was his line from? Uh, oh, he wants to touch the light, the heat in
1: your eyes. It, oh, it, yes. He's literally advocating the touching of eyeballs with, you know, salty, greasy fingertips. <laughs> uh, very bad.
0: Yeah, there's no there's no reason for that.
1: Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, OK, so the camera obscura we, we know it was this important development in the history of optics, but it does not constitute photography because it does not fix the image it captures to be observed later. So, so what did it do? I think we should take a break and then come back and look at possible – sort of possible invention history uh, of the camera obscura and what it did.
0: All right, we're back. So, this is another one of those cases where when you look at the the technology that is required for the simplest version of the of, of the invention, the camera obscura in this case, you really don't need much. You need the ability to had to build or manipulate an enclosed dark space, and you need whole technology. <laughs>
1: I mean, ca- the, the funny thing is a camera obscura doesn't even have to be created by humans. They can exist totally naturally. Oh, yeah. Imagine a uh, a tree that's hollow in the middle and it's got a hole in the bark, or imagine a cave that's got a, uh, the correctly-sized hole in the wall that projects against a, an opposite wall.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have to imagine our our Gary Larson's far side um uh, prehistoric human uh, encountering some 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 form of camera obscura and reacting to it and in, in ancient times.
1: Well, that's really interesting because we don't know who created the first camera obscura on purpose. We don't know who encountered the first camera obscura. Uh, We do have some early descriptions of how it works or how people thought it worked. But one uncertain and very intriguing possibility is what you're talking about, that prehistoric peoples actually discovered the use of the camera obscura long before we knew anything about optics or or how this worked. Uh, One example is I was reading an interesting article uh, about this by the science writer Jennifer Ouellette about a presentation by somebody named uh, Kieran Simcox, a student at Nottingham Trent University at the Royal Astronomical Society in Britain in 2016. And the basic idea here is that prehistoric megalithic tomb structures, you know, these big stone tombs that ancient peoples built, uh, you know, before, before we had any written records with a long narrow passageways in these tombs would sometimes open toward the sky and would effectively function as a type of camera obscura for observing stars and astronomical objects that were otherwise too dim to see. Uh, For instance, sighting a certain star rising at dawn at the beginning of spring could have been a sign for ancient hunter-gatherers to migrate for the warmer months. It's possible. We don't know. But that's an interesting thing to consider.
0: Interesting. Yeah, like ancient ancient use of uh, of camera obscura as a, a means of observing the cosmos. yeah which of course, it is a very uh, even today it's it's an effective uh, way, uh, one way to observe a solar eclipse that's exactly
1: right. and and ancient uh, thinkers noticed this. Uh, it's also been postulated by a number of scholars that other prehistoric structures, caves, and even hollow trees maybe have the potential to become a camera obscura. Simply, if there's a correctly sized and per- positioned hole or aperture, uh, and thus the camera obscura could possibly even play a role in the origin of cave paintings and art. Hmm. Again, we don't know this happened, but just imagine the possibility. Imagine the transition from a 3D, always moving visual world to uh, to a fixed 2D image. When a camera obscura projected an image from the outside of a cave inverted onto a cave wall and a prehistoric hominid traced that image or was inspired by the projected image to make 2D images of their own.
0: Yeah, you know, this makes me wonder, and this is just pure speculation on my part, but I, I wonder if this could have influenced any early concepts of, of other realms, you know, some sort of a, an, an upside down world that's uh, more faint than mm-hmm. our own. Yeah, the, yeah
1: uh the the ethereal nature of the imagination yeah. coming through in that uh, yeah so it's a really interesting speculation based on some slight evidence but at this point it it remains speculation we we don't know for sure or have any really strong evidence that i'm aware of that any prehistoric people's made use of a camera obscura it's fascinating to imagine but we don't know right However, there were important early descriptions of the principle of the camera obscura, and I think, as as far as I'm aware, the earliest one was by a fifth century BCE Chinese philosopher named uh, Mozi or Mo
0: Di. Yeah, or or just Master Mo, because that's what it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and this would have been the uh, the Warring States period.
1: So Master Mo wrote on the subject of a pinhole aperture and how it could be used to understand the power of light. He wrote about how a small hole in the wall of a darkened house could cause an image of the outside world to be projected inverted or upside down on the opposite wall. And Master Mo wrote, quote, the image is inverted because there is an intersection at the point. It is because of the point that the image is formed. And this is quoted in a in a book chapter by Edwin K. Lai on the, the history of uh, photographic technology in China.
0: Yeah, uh, Li had another quote uh, from Mo that I I found really interesting image an illuminated person shines as if he were emitting rays the bottom part of the person appears at the top part of the image and the top part appears at the bottom part so that image is formed at the top whilst light from the head has been blocked in the upper part so the image is formed at the bottom from distances far away or nearby light enters through the point therefore an image is formed inside the collecting house
1: so this shows that master mo Understood the optical principles about how this image was being projected through the aperture.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one. That's like one thing that that is perhaps lacking in in earlier accounts is you know if you see a, a like say an accidental camera obscura in action, mm-hmm. you might, just might not have the language to even interpret what's occurring, uh, except perhaps magical uh, descriptions that could sort of you know become lost uh, over time. But yeah, he clearly. Understands the the principle in, at play here, uh, but uh, one of the things that's interesting too is that the writings of Mo fell out of fashion, and it seems um, that no one else wrote about camera obscuras in China, or at least nothing that has survived for another thousand years. Yeah, so it's it's always interesting when someone kind of. Uh, either happens upon an invention, or sort of highlights a technology, and then it perhaps it's just before its time, or there's nothing, there's no real application for it, or no one you know grabs onto it, and so it just kind of languishes for uh, a millennium.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. You have to wonder. I, I don't know if it's possible or if it's likely that this would happen, but you have to wonder: are similar things happening now? Is there like somebody doing something now that a 1,000 years later people will look back and be like, wow, so-and-so did this thing that was revolutionary but people didn't recognize it at the time and they forgot about it for a 1,000 years? It's kind of hard to imagine that. But then again, I mean, we wouldn't know it if we saw it, right? That would be the reason we weren't picking up on it.
0: Yeah, well, I feel my, – my gut instinct is that – is that uh, innovation takes place at such a faster pace. You know, mm-hmm. We wouldn't be looking at 1,000 years. We'd be looking at uh, you know, a, a decade or maybe five years. Yeah. And I think that you do see some level of this, certainly with, with certain bits of technological innovation. You know, uh, I think there are probably some examples in, say, tablet technology, mm-hmm. where uh, you see precursors to uh, the iPhone or the iPad, et cetera, and uh, you know, the, the early versions just didn't take off. Uh, but then it's like somebody gets it right and or markets it correctly markets it correctly or uh, manufactures it correctly like like gets something else some of the other uh, boxes checked off that allow the product to really take hold in the in, in the collective mindset,
1: yeah. I was reading a brief passage about uh, Master Mo's discovery in another book uh, called Capturing the Light by uh, Roger Watson and Helen Rappaport, and that's also about the history of photography. But they're talking about the optical discoveries of uh, of Master Mo, and they write, quote, he – spoke of a device for passing sunlight through a pinhole onto a collecting plate, its mysterious function being that of a, quote, locked treasure room, hmm. a kind of light-proof box that would channel the power of the sun in such a way that man could safely observe it, and the images of the recognized world outside that it projected. And I love this mysterious imagery here, the locked treasure room, because it is sort of a, it's like a treasure room of insights about optics. Mm-hmm. It would, you know, he, M- Master Mo had this uh, indispensable in counterintuitive insight, to understand the power of light, you had to limit it. You could only begin to understand optics and the power of the sun and the behavior of light rays by blocking out almost all of its influence. But anyway, I mean, from all this, it's interesting to see that the camera obscura has this a uh, whole role going way, way back in Chinese history, probably before and certainly separate from its role in the history of Western
0: optics. Those certainly. Uh... Early Western minds did pick up on it as well.
1: Yeah, Aristotle sort of seemed to allude to the the focusing effects of an aperture on sunlight. For example, during an eclipse, if you've ever witnessed a, a solar eclipse, mm-hmm. a total solar eclipse, when the eclipse gets near totality, you will see all kinds of bizarre effects in the world around you. Just look at the way that sunlight, say, filtering through uh, the the you know, the spots in the, of light that get through a tree's canopy or something mm-hmm. all become sickle-shaped. It's just a world of little bright sickles all around you.
0: Yeah, well, when the last um, solar eclipse occurred in North America, we had an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about it. And I believe we we, we talked about uh, observing it. Or maybe we gave – I think it was like two parts. We gave sort of a preliminary um, uh, episode in which we prepared people to view the eclipse. And then afterwards, we talked about our own experiences a little bit.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really glad I went out to see that. I, I went up to Tennessee to observe it and it was uh it was magnificent. If oh, you yeah. get a chance to see a total solar eclipse in your life, don't miss that chance. It's worth seeing.
0: Yeah, it it is it is also magical feeling in the way that it reveals uh uh, you know, r- reveals the wonder of something we just take for granted. You know, we're just so immersed in the normal solar cycles mm-hmm. that when you have uh, an, an, this, you know, this, 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 uh, the this solar eclipse uh, occur, it really makes you realize the, the majesty of what is occurring every day.
1: Yeah. Now, back to the camera obscura, uh, there, there were more developments around the 11th century. So while not fully describing a pinhole camera or camera obscura, according to Edwin Lai, some of the basic principles involved were articulated by a Chinese Song Dynasty scientist and political leader named Xin Kuo. Who lived 1031 to 1095? Who performed experiments showing that if you used a curved mirror to use sunlight to start fires, like focusing, you know, mm-hmm. doing the burning a burning an ant thing, which don't do that. Um, the mirror would invert the image that it reflected, and Shin Quo said this was because of quote friction. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means, but maybe there is a sense to that that's that's getting lost in translation.
0: But of course, it's in the Arab world that we see uh, some of the other uh, like really key preliminary uh, mentions of the camera obscura. Yes, exactly. So the first
1: full known description of the camera obscura, according to Watson and Rappaport, is by the 11th century Arab physicist, mathematician, astronomer, and general polymath – Ibn al-Haytham, also known sometimes as al-Hazan. And al-Haytham wrote a seven-volume work on the science of optics between around 1011 and 1021. And in this work, he described the use of a pinhole aperture in a darkened enclosure to observe sunlight, including using it to observe a solar eclipse. And he established through experiments performed in Cairo that light traveled in straight lines and he used the camera obscura to make notes about the shape of the sun during a partial eclipse like we were talking about. Now, of course, looking directly at the sun even during a a partial eclipse can severely damage your eyes don't do it. You should never look directly at the sun, even during a solar eclipse, except during the brief period of totality. Uh, but a pinhole camera box can actually allow you to observe what happens to the shape of the sun as it becomes a sickle of starlight before it's totally eclipsed during the process. So if you don't want to damage your eyes and you want to observe uh, the partial stages of an eclipse, uh, a camera obscure is a great thing to build and you can look up instructions on the internet about how to do this a lot of you know a lot of people did this in elementary school
0: oh yeah this all you use a shoebox yeah mm mm-hmm.
1: Now, uh, Edwin Lai also mentions other figures in the history of Chinese optics who may have uh, done some experiments with or referred to the camera obscura. The Yuan dynasty scholars Tao Zongyi about, uh who lived about 1320 to about 1402, and Zhao Yuchin, who lived the mid-1200s to the early 1300s. They both made references to this knowledge, and Zhao did experiments to show, quote, how changes in the light source and in distances from the pinhole would change the final image. So he's writing about this principle. Now, somebody who definitely had thoughts about the Camera Obscura was the medieval English philosopher and empiricist Roger Bacon, one of of the heroes of uh, William of Baskerville.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right.
1: And so Roger Bacon, having read Ibn al-Haytham's work in translation by the 13th century, wrote that optics in the study of light was, quote, the flower of the whole of philosophy <laughs> <laughs> and that without it, none of the other sciences would ever, be, uh, would ever be understood. And so understanding the importance of the camera obscura in studying optical phenomena, Bacon used the principle to observe solar eclipses in the 13th century.
0: You know, it's interesting to think about the way that uh, certain, certainly astronomy and uh, and scientific uh, understanding of previous centuries like made its way into occult practices mm-hmm. and, and alchemy. Um, I'm reminded that uh, in, in reading about uh, various uh, recipes for creating a, a homunculus, uh-huh. uh, there were calls for like using a totally dark room, huh. and I don't remember any you know mention of a of a pinhole or an aperture. Uh, but it makes me think if if to some extent. Experiments by uh, the you know these, these great thinkers in the past with cameras uh, camera obscuras might have served to sort of cement the darkened room as some sort of a you know a magical space. For spell work. Oh yeah, you could think, especially if you like saw
1: but didn't understand yeah. what Al Hytham and Master Mo and Roger Bacon were doing. They'd, be, they'd like take people into a darkened room, <laughs> and there'd be all this ooing and awing, and you're like, "What's going on?"
0: Yeah, like like Bacon has this room, there, and there's no light around allowed in it, except for one little hole, and something spectacular happens in there. Uh, that that it sounds suspicious. Totally, I can see that.
1: Now, over the following centuries, the camera obscura would appear in a more portable format as a – something more like what you're familiar with probably if you've ever made one out of a shoebox. The camera obscura became often uh, the form of a wooden box with like a ground glass lens, which could even be set over a table or other surface to project an image onto whatever screen was desired – even onto paper. And this idea of projecting direct images of the natural world, while not a form of photography, was an interesting precursor to it since you could use the projected image as a kind of tracing guide or to create a template for a work of art to be painted and filled in later. And the Renaissance painter and inventor Leonardo da Vinci used the camera obscura for exactly this purpose, recognizing its power to help guide the artist in correctly replicating perspective. Because, I, Robert, I don't know if you're is <laughs> bad an artist as I am? I'm, I'm terrible at drawing and visual visual art. Uh, but I think e- even if you've got some natural talent for it, just think about how hard it is to recreate perspective effects of our of our point of view on an image just by eyeballing it.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean. I'm, I can only just draw gremlins and, and whatnot in the margins of, of notes. Uh, but one of the things, I have a friend uh, uh, named Kurt who is a professional artist. And one of my favorite things to do with him is get him to explain paintings to me. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, I, I, have, I have a lot of appreciation for art. I have a fair amount of, uh, you know, I, I, I can keep up with a fair amount of art history. Uh, but when he gets into the technical aspects of perspective and all, uh, like he, he always points out something that I'm just completely blind to. and mm-hmm. just really makes me appreciate Right. Uh, the Even more so the talent that is executed, uh, the artistry that is executed in some of these great works of art past and present.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one reason like an actual curated museum tour with somebody who knows what they're talking about with with the works of art and can show you things to look at, that can be far more interesting than you'd even imagine. Um, I, you know, I I, I enjoy art museums and all that, but like a really good guided tour is gold.
0: Yeah, like I tend to end up focusing a lot on, of course, the history of the piece, who Mm -hmm. made it, when. The, the the symbolism uh, the, you know, if there's a mythological story or a biblical story that's being told there, like what's its purpose? What's its message? You're what very is
1: yeah, story minded.
0: Yeah, so so that you know that's where I often enter in, and I have to be reminded of all that other stuff. Uh, uh you know, be, beyond the material uh, uh, aspects of it as well.
1: <laughs> Though this also reminds me of the worst museum tour <laughs> I ever had. With a, there was one we went on where there was a docent who, every painting we'd go to, he he'd be like, "What do you notice about this painting?" And the group people. In the group would say I don't know and they'd offer up answers and he'd just keep saying no what do you notice (laughs) 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 until we got the answer he wanted we usually didn't and then he'd just eventually have to
0: tell us Uh, you know there's not to get off on too much of a tangent, but there is something about, about seeing actual, like the actual piece of art uh-huh. that, I mean, obviously it's great when you realize that something is even grander than you thought it was. You know, it's a much bigger piece and you are you get to sort of interact with it and you change your perspectives on it. But I also enjoy kind of the reverse where you're like, oh, wow, this this painting is really small in real life. Uh-huh. And it, it feels less grand in a way uh, presented here instead of uh, in a book or on a computer screen. Or another one that comes to mind is uh, Buchland's uh, The Isle of the Dead, or, w- or one of the versions. Oh, I think yeah, there are a few yeah. different versions of it, but there's a, a one of them is hanging in the Met in New York City. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of a disappointing experience, or I felt slightly disappointed. It's amazing to see it in real life, knowing that this is a famous painting, uh, you know, one that you've you know read about and heard about. But it's a very dark image, a lot of lot of black in it. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 really difficult to get a real world like to get yourself in just right the just the right perspective to really look at it and take it in as a painting, or at least in my experience,
1: oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that can definitely i I've noticed sometimes i've seen I've gone to see a painting in real life you know, that I'd seen represented on maybe TV or on a computer screen before. And Mm -hmm. the weird thing I found is that seeing it in person sometimes was a less intimate feeling of relationship to that work of art than seeing it on like a screen had been. I'm not quite sure why that is. Maybe it's just that you're physically closer to a screen or that screens are where so much of your life happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird. And I feel like it, it does vary from artist to artist and style to style, um, you know, like one of my, my favorite artists is Irving Norman, and I, I really enjoy looking at his, uh, at, you know, magazine prints of his work, uh, looking at images on the computer screen, mm-hmm. but getting to see his pieces in, in real life uh, really blow me away. Like there's, it's, it's like, you know, 10 times the experience.
1: Yeah, that. Well, I, I'm not sure that I know Irving Norman. I'll have to look him up
0: after. Oh, this. he's definitely worth looking up. Very, uh, you know, dark, dark surrealist art of the 20th century.
1: Oh, I think maybe I have seen this actually. Yeah, I, I that I, I probably about, yeah.
0: thrust it on you upon you at some point or oh, another. Well, I appreciate the thrusting, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so, but no, we were talking about like how hard it can be. If you're just trying to recreate an image uh, by eyeballing something or even worse, trying to recreate it from memory of an Mm -hmm. image, right? What if you want to paint something but you can't stay – you know, you can't paint it while you're looking at it? But if you had a portable camera obscura, you could maybe do kind of like a perspective sketch of it that could jog your memory later. And so using the camera obscura as a guide for drawing was an interesting stepping stone from a world where every recorded image was – just necessarily a totally human interpretation to a world of the the semi-objective visual records like photographs. And I say semi-objective because while, of course, the light recording process of photography is mechanical and pretty much, I would say, objective, you can always still argue that photography is subjective in that it it entails choices about framing and perspective left up to the photographer.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, like you can take a picture and it looks like somebody is – is pushing or pushing over or holding up, uh, the, the leaning tower of Pisa, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously that's not actually taking place. Right. Uh, you can, you've, everybody's seen various pictures with some sort of a, you know, a, a big animal, like, like a, like a giant hog, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. And yeah, there's, there's room with perspective to play with the way you frame your shot to make things look, uh, uh, different than they actually are.
1: Right. But certainly, I mean, there is still just like truly physical. There are rays of light coming into yeah. the lens. And that's, in a way, that is an objective recording of the physical space. And so I think it's so interesting that you've got this stepping stone in the middle here. The camera obscura is a way of like flattening out physical reality onto a 2D surface, allowing you to to see what that looks like. What is it like when you put the world on a flat space? And what happens if I trace that? What happens if I try to fill that in with paint?
0: It's almost like seeing through another's eyes. It's like, you know, externalizing some aspect of sight Mm. and getting to step outside of it.
1: Well, maybe we should take another break and then come back and explore a little bit more about the legacy of the Camera Obscura and and some more ideas about how it could have figured into Renaissance art.
0: All right, we're back. Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about the legacy. Ultimately, the big – the biggest legacy of the Camera Obscura is, of course, that it does lead to – true photograph technology, yeah. to the true camera, and a lot of that we're going to save for the next episode of Invention. But there's still some other uh, key uh, key bits of legacy to discuss here.
1: So I was not aware of this beforehand, but this is one thing our uh, our friend Scott Benjamin turned up and, and let us know about, is this idea of uh, an actual controversial hypothesis in art history that deals with the technology of the camera obscura and,
0: and optics. Yes, the, the Hockney-Falco thesis. Uh, and I have to say I was mainly familiar with it uh, because Teller of Penn & Teller, mm-hmm. um, he put together a documentary called Tim's uh, came out in, t- in 2013 that deals with, with the, the subject we're discussing here.
1: OK. So what's the deal with this hypothesis?
0: All right. So it's a theory of art history proposed by artist David Hockney and physicist Charles M. Falco. And uh, the idea, and basically this comes back to their book, uh, 2001 book, Secret Knowledge, Rediscovering the Lost Techniques of the Old Masters. Uh And the basic idea is that we see leaps in realism during the Renaissance, in Renaissance painting. That they argue was due at least in in large part to the use of optical technology by the old masters optical technology that would have included mirrors, but also the camera obscura itself. Hmm. And uh, the idea here is is it's really interesting to discuss because, of course artists use technology. Sure. You know, a brush is technology. Paint uh, is, technology. Paint is yeah, technology. It's chemistry, yeah. Yeah, so you know, they use any artist out there is going to probably they're probably using the best brushes, the best canvases, the best paints uh, that you know, that they can find, that they can obtain or that you know fit their purposes. Mm-hmm. And uh, on on top of that, we also know that 19th century artists made ready use of of photographs, uh, just as many painters do today. 20th and 21st century, uh, painters have made use of film, video, computers. So it's not, in my mind, crazy or blasphemous to consider that, yes, painters such as Vermeer uh, may have used camera obscura or mirrors and lenses in the creation of their paintings
1: uh maybe that's more of a taboo if you're in the art world or something that just seems to me like well okay that's just a technique they were using
0: if if indeed they did use it i don't want to assume here right and and this this theory is uh you know contested it's not it's not proven by any any, any means but we're going to do some of the arguments for both sides okay but yeah it's clear that many artists certainly knew about optics uh, we've talked about we've already spoken about the the the, the ancient history of mm. of the camera obscura da vinci clearly knew yeah um, Albrecht Dürer uh, apparently uh, wrote about camera obscura as well. And by 1437, uh, Leon uh, Battista Alberti is documented to have used the camera obscura in the creation of his art. Mm-hmm. But the question is, well, how, what about the others? How, What about uh, Vermeer and, and other um, um, old masters? Mm-hmm. Did they use the camera obscura? And like keep it
1: secret or not talk about That's it? That's the
0: thing. Was it like a trade secret among uh-huh. artists or was it less of a secret? after all i mean there's evidence on both sides so so This is something we could easily do an entire episode on, like just this topic, but just to sort of highlight uh, some of the pros and cons here. So one pro is that, uh, you know, some charge that the level of detail in many of these masterpieces is beyond what one could simply eyeball. Mm -hmm. Like there is just a level of of detail and perspective um, and and accuracy that requires more than just looking and remembering.
1: Well, not having a talent for visual art myself, I feel like that's something I could couldn't judge. I just know that some people are much better at mentally representing 3D imagery onto a 2D surface, and I don't know how much better than me they could be.
0: Right, and, and I'll go ahead and say that one of the cons, uh, the big uh, uh, arguments against this is that is that some say, well, you know, you're discounting what is truly possible uh, with the with, in the mind of the painter, like mm-hmm. what is truly possible without technological optical aids. Now another bit of uh, evidence that is sometimes brought up and presented is a fifteenth-century painter Jan van Eyck, who included glass and even mirrors in his work, and was clearly intrigued by optical properties. Like mm-hmm. one of his most famous pieces uh, is this portrait right in there. There's this uh, there's this mirror uh, in the middle, like behind them, that's centered between them, and in it you can see the painter. Uh, mm. And uh, and so it's it's been argued that like yeah he's including this mirror because he you know he's he was uh, you know somewhat obsessed by optics and that perhaps it was part of his process to use them.
1: Hmm. Now one thing I can see is that it's just going to be hard to decide whether or not we should listen to this hypothesis if it's just people arguing about what's possible for people to do without aids. I would be interested to see if there's evidence of, like, artifacts appearing in the painting that would only be there if people were using optical aids and technologies.
0: Yeah, and and this is where uh, you get into the idea that uh, that there may be evidence of optical distortion in the finished pieces Hmm. that would match up with the sort of optical distortion that you would get through using uh, camera obscura or various mirrors. However, this, too, is contested. So you'll see uh, Hockney and Falco, you know, presenting this as part of their evidence, but people who disagree with them, they're going to argue we'll know that, you know, you, we're, we're not seeing this kind of optical distortion.
1: Wait a minute. Isn't, is one part of this distortion like the Rubens butts?
0: Is that, <laughs> or is that just artistic style? Um, I don't recall uh, the the Rubenesque uh, uh uh bodies uh being part of the evidence. Uh, it might have been. Now and and uh, this also gets to another huge uh con and that is that there's far less direct or textual evidence here. So we're talking like uh, are you know artists having written about using these techniques or they're being in anything beyond just merely looking at the pieces and and say and and interpreting them, interpreting the finished piece of art itself. Hmm. So um, so yeah. Ultimately, I feel like it's difficult to really land on you know one answer or the other. there, there is that two, 2013 Teller documentary, Tim's Vermeer, and it follows uh, Tim uh, Jennison in his effort to duplicate the painting techniques of Vermeer to test this theory. And um, basically, he he ends up creating this piece through – with the help of optical devices. And then Hockney and Falco themselves appear at the end and judge the finished work, which they conclude supports the theory.
1: You mean their theory that that he couldn't do it without the help of optical devices.
0: Right. Well, but I I mean I also don't want to – I feel like it's tricky to frame this correctly because uh, like for my money, uh, again, not being – a, a visual artist mm-hmm. uh, and, and largely being just a you know a, 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 someone who appreciates art. I, I'd say that it, you know it doesn't just dis- take anything away from me. Uh, to consider that Vermeer or any of these other masters use this technology to create their work. Like, there's still, it's not like, if you've ever tried to trace anything uh-huh. and been disappointed in the work, and Lord knows I I did as, uh, when I was younger, like, you can realize there's more than just merely projecting, uh, you know, using the camera obscura to project something on a wall and then tracing over it or painting over it, etc. Yeah. Like, you still have to have a very high degree of, of uh, artistic talent to... To, to bring that painting to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I again, I don't
1: know whether or not this hypothesis is true. But, I mean, I don't see any reason to object to it apart from if it just has lack of evidence. I right. mean, like it's – I believe in the superhuman power of art, but art isn't magic. I mean, art is a physical thing people do that involves technology all the time. Technology is constantly changing art.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, technology changes art. I mean, really, the the, the main exceptions to that, of course, are going to be cases where there's some sort of cultural need to preserve the technique Mm. through which the art is created. And we do see plenty of examples of that. And it's especially true in places where you're protecting those cultural practices from technology that is brought in through colonial influence. Oh, sure. Um, but but even then, I you you guess you can argue. Well, then you're still using technology to help preserve the culture of mm-hmm. it. Perhaps you're using uh, uh, you know video to to capture the process so that others may learn it. Or you're using you know modern printing techniques to create a a, a book that uh, informs uh, new members of, uh, of these cultures uh, and instructs them on how to continue the tradition. I mean, I guess that's just something that I feel like should always be – that's
1: up to the artist and is constantly negotiated between the artist and their audience. Like what kind mm-hmm. of techniques do they feel are acceptable? I'm I'm just saying I don't personally look at an artist using technology and think, wow, they're not really doing art.
0: Right, and then in, and I imagine you also get into a case where what technological advances are permitted and which ones don't feel appropriate when you're trying to preserve some sort of uh, – you know, culturally entrenched practice. Mm -hmm. I imagine it's always an an act of negotiation where you have to to decide, all right, we're we're not going to do this, but yes, we will improve, say, our brushes or our pigments, uh, but we're still going to do it this way because this is the way that we always have done
1: it. Personally, I think it's only art if it is painted on the side of a living pig.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Has to be in a cave. If it's not in a cave, it's not art.
1: I wonder if you get uh, people going the other way, like techno chauvinists about art, like it, it's only art if you use, you know, this type of femtosecond laser to create it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That would be interesting to consider. Uh, hopefully we'll do more episodes in the future where we talk about the, uh, the, the influence of technology and invention uh, on artistic endeavors. I mean, certainly we'll get into it in photography and motion pictures in our next two episodes. I do want to add one more thing, though. So obviously when we get to photography, uh, there is an erotic element that becomes evident. Oh, yeah. And certainly with motion pictures as well. But I could find no evidence that um, the camera obscure was ever used uh, for erotic or pornographic purposes, which I, I guess makes sense. But, but part of me is like a little disappointed slash suspicious because <laughs> I feel like somebody had to have – tried it at some point and maybe, you know, to whatever extent artists were um toying with the technology or using the technology i figured one of them leonardo come on he had to have have tried this out at some point
1: well i mean i i can see why it wouldn't have necessarily been all that useful in that context because uh, the benefit of using photography and and motion picture and stuff like mm-hmm. that is that it can just be like fixed in time duplicated replayed or viewed later right uh, with the camera obscura your subject has to be physically present
0: Right. So you'd have to, yeah, it would have to be a very particular sort of technological fetish. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, but at any rate, uh, yeah, as far as I could tell, doesn't factor into the history of, er- of erotic art in in any way other than just being mainly a precursor to photography. Mm-hmm. But if I'm wrong on that, I would love to hear tales of uh, erotic camera obscura.
1: Just a hunk with a Rubens butt upside down on, your, on, your,
0: <laughs> <laughs> on the back wall of your barn or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's the mental image we should close on here. Uh,
1: upside down, Rubens butt hunk. Yes. Okay. Yes.
0: I should. I should just actually throw in and explain a little bit. We're talking about the the art of uh, Peter Paul Rubens, um, who free, you know, we we discuss Rubens esque uh, paintings. Uh, we use that term for a reason because he did have a very signature. Um, Like sort of thick naked style in so many of his arts, magnificent paintings. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely magnificent stocky butts in his paintings. (laughs) They're just full of them,
0: right? Uh, And and it it does make me think back to an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind um, that I did with with Julie Douglas about um, uh, Stendhal syndrome. Mm -hmm. The idea, you know, you're you're in the presence of great art, and it you know has a physical effect on you. Uh, There is at least one variant of that that. that tied into Rubin's work and the idea that, like, in viewing the pieces, you would just be overcome by the erotic power of them,
1: hypnotized by magnificent stocky butts.
0: I guess, yeah. And, and uh, again, it kind of gets into the power of the uh, of of the two D image. You know, mm. uh, it's easy to take for granted just how how potent and over and overpowering these works can be.
1: They almost have a, a quality that's kind of like a, a pirate pirate video transmission from another dimension where butts are king
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right well we'll leave you all to to google the works of uh, ruben on your own as well as uh, these other artists that we've mentioned here Uh, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode of invention but certainly tune in next week and the week after as we uh, begin to explore the camera uh, the motion picture and then go on from there in our continual uh, never-ending exploration of human techno history in the meantime, if you want to check out old episodes of Invention, uh, head on over to the website. That is Invention pod.com that is where you will find all the episodes you find links out to social media accounts uh, if you want to engage with other listeners uh, head on over to facebook and search for our our, uh, our group there it's the stuff to blow your mind discussion module because that is where uh, you can discuss episodes of stuff to blow your mind our other podcast or episodes of invention uh, discuss it with other listeners as well as uh, as with us because uh, we pop in uh, fairly regularly there
1: yeah come on by yeah Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, uh, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, tell us how you found out about the show, uh, where you listen from, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com.